Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. As ever, each week we take you behind the curtain into the world of football business and other sports across the globe. Alongside me from The Athletic, as ever, our football news reporter, Matt Slater. Coming up today, after the EFL salary caps in League One and League Two are scrapped, we speak to Nick DeMarco, the QC who successfully argued the case for the PFA, and we also get reaction from the Accrington Stanley chairman, Andy Holt. And as free-to-air test cricket returns to UK screens, we'll discuss how successful the coverage will be in reaching a wider audience with the TV analyst, Julian Aquilina. Welcome to the Business of Sport from The Athletic. Don't forget, you can subscribe right now to The Athletic for just £3.99 a month. That means you'll get the great analysis, the in-depth features from the very best football writers around and ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. Just head to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to sign up. Let's start with a big story affecting clubs lower down the professional pyramid in England as the EFL's salary caps in League One and Two were withdrawn. The caps, which put a fixed total on the amount clubs can spend on player wages per season in the third and fourth tier of English football, were only introduced in August. Delighted to say on the pod, we're joined by Nick DeMarco, the QC who successfully argued the case for the PFA. Just before we we get to the PFA's case, can, can you just explain the mechanics of how this case was argued over Zoom and who was involved and who made the final decision? One of the problems with arbitration in sport is that it's generally confidential. Um, So I can't ever say anything about these cases or the processes, um, which is not already in the public domain. I mean, I, I can say it was a very distinguished independent judicial panel. Both sides, as usual in arbitration, appoint a member and then there's an independent process of a chairman being appointed they're very they're all very senior legal experts but i think this whole issue of confidentiality raises an important question itself i know matt's written about before because this isn't like an ordinary dispute between you know two companies over a construction dispute it's about the regulations of the efl it affects all the clubs it affects all the players in league one and league two and it's had the immediate implication of changing the rules. And so, as you would expect, the experienced panel who came up with the decision have written a very lengthy judgment explaining it. And that's the kind of judgment, in my view, that obviously should be published so that, you know, you can read it, clubs can read it, whether you support salary caps or don't, they need to know why and what happened. And I understand why Bodies like the EFL are sometimes a little defensive about this sort of thing, but it seems to me in everyone's interest that 
uh, they agree to publish it. And then, you know, you'll be able to ask those questions and, and read the answers yourself. Just quickly on that, then, it, it, what's the process for whether it gets published or not? If, you, if, you can ex- if you're able to explain that. The thing is, Nick, isn't it, that in a building dispute, there aren't that many interested parties, but there yeah. are hundreds of thousands of interested parties in fans groups up and down the country who know that their club is at the heart of a community. So that's why they want to know this. Exactly right. I mean, I I know you've got um, Accrington Stanley's chairman on later, and I I know he's got strong views about it, and I respect his views, but to be fair to him, he's unable to know unless he reads the decision why it was reached. So everyone has the right to see why this decision has reached it, in my view. The process is a simple one. Both parties need to agree. Now, the PFA is quite happy for the decision to be published, so far as I know. The EFL has not yet agreed for it to be published. That's somewhat surprising because in any other dispute where the EFL are a party, you know, I I did the Derby case, for instance, the Sheffield Wednesday case. In other cases of that sort, the rules actually say the EFL have to publish the decision. Now, in this case, because it was what's called an ad hoc arbitration, wasn't done under EFL rules. It's up to both parties. So unless the EFL consent, it can't be published. I think you raised some really good points. It's Matt here. Thanks again for coming on. You're right. I have written about this this subject. I, I think it's fascinating the whole the whole arbitration process and really why sport does that, basically to avoid courts, which are even more expensive and time consuming. And you know, there's lots of sound reasons for going to arbitration. And and you're right. The whole point is you're then supposed to sort of keep it quiet and we can sort of speak frankly, Chatham House rules type situation. But at the end, I think for transparency's sake, unless there's really commercially sensitive stuff in there, it would be good to get it out. And look, the EFL aren't here. We did we did ask them to come on and I think they might come on in the future. I think one of the reasons they haven't said a great deal yet or agreed to publish the report yet is they want to discuss it with the clubs first. And I understand there's a meeting on Thursday. So let's see. I certainly will be holding them to account on that. They have in the last year or so got a track record, as you say, of, of agreeing to publish arbitration judgments. And even when they lose, even when Nick, when you've given them a bloody nose, which you've done a few times in the last year or so, they have said, no, no, let's get it out there. It's important people can read it. So let's see where we go with this. My, my question to you is, I know there's things you can and can't say. Could you broadly sketch out the PFA's case coming in to this this, this matter, this dispute? I think there's enough in the public domain to, to explain the basis of it, which is that the, the there's this committee called the Professional Football Negotiating and Consultative Committee, the PFNCC. It was set up in the late 70s. And it's a it's a collective bargaining agreement under trade union law and the Premier League are part of it, the EFL, the FA and the PFA. And it's got a constitution which you can all read. It's published in the EFL's handbook. And one of the things it says is that no major changes to the regulations of the leagues affecting a player's terms and conditions of employment shall take place without full discussion and agreement in the PFNCC. So as you might imagine, when the EFL came along with the idea of a salary cap in League One and League Two, the PFA said, well, we need to discuss and agree this in the PFNCC. And the EFL said, no, you don't. It's up to us. We'll, we'll do, we, we don't need to go through the PFNCC. So the case was essentially about, is this a matter that must go through the PFNCC or not? And the PFA said it was. The EFL said it wasn't. And the PFL, what, the PFA won 
uh, the case on that. In that sense, it's quite a narrow issue, although it's um, it, it, it's in the context of a contract and trade union law and so on. It's it, it's very significant, though, in my view, for a number of reasons. I mean, no doubt we'll come on to the financial implications, but. I was thinking about it and in line with some of the celebrated cases you all know about brought by, you know, George Eastman in the 60s and Mark Bosman in the 90s. It's one of those few cases that actually results in an immediate change in the rules. And here in the middle of the season, even even more dramatic. And it's the first time in my knowledge that that's happened in a, a football dispute as a result of sort of industrial relations, trade union law as well. So it, it is an interesting decision, I think, for everybody involved. Yeah, you may not be able to answer this then. Did it, did it need to change in the middle of the season, bearing in mind all contracts are already agreed until the end of the season? That's a good question. The short answer is that the, and again, I think this is clear from the Football League's press release, they said that their position was always if they were wrong and they were meant to go through the PFNCC, they would immediately scrap the salary cap regulations. And so this, this decision, it could have happened a month ago, two months ago, it could have happened in two months, you never know the timing. But I, I think that's why it's, it's happened as it has. It's interesting you mentioned the, um, the what was it, the PFNCC, excuse yes. me if I don't get what, yes, <laughs> right. So it. you mentioned that, because that, be that was going to be one of my questions to you was, We've spent a lot of time on this pod often comparing the European market to the North American market. And we talked not that long ago, maybe a couple of pods ago, about the collective bargaining agreement Mm. that is in place, for example, within the NFL. Mm. So that anything that happens to the players, let's say the players refuse to train because they want to be drafted, they can be fined their salary because that's in the collective bargaining agreement. So there is something similar in place within our football. It just hasn't been resorted to that often. Well, that's right. And there's a standard football contract that all Premier League and Football League players have. Now, whilst the the wages are individually negotiated, there are some standard terms about what the players must do and what the clubs must do and how you terminate. All of that is uh, subject to collective bargaining. And there's a good reason for that. I think I heard some of your podcast about the transfer market and so on. Yeah. Football is a very peculiar business. Uh, It's one of the only ones where neither side, clubs or players, can just terminate the agreement and pay damages. You know, a player can't walk out and go to another club because his registrations hold and there's a there's a trade in players. And so there are all these sorts of things which are restraints. But one of the justification for those restraints is that they are subject to collective bargaining. So when you take that collective bargaining away and when you say, well, we're going to do something like impose a wage cap, but we're not going to speak to you about it. And it obviously affects players. That's the purpose of it. That's obviously why the the PFA brought the claim it did. I wonder, and I'm I'm going to sort of ask you now to be a psychologist or, uh, you know, some, you know, read people's minds here, but, but I, I get the impression that, that whilst the EFL would have preferred to win this case, I don't think they're absolutely devastated that they lost it. Because I get the impression they felt they had to do something. And there's a, I know there's this sort of demand in our culture these days to do something. And they did something. It's what the clubs wanted, you know, by a pretty clear majority in League One and League Two anyway. They did it. We're through this weird season. They kind of knew, I think they were going to lose. I also think they kind of knew that if they didn't lose, they were going to lose a row with the Premier League. 
about installing it in the championship. So they knew they were going to have to have a conversation about it anyway. So they've lost. But what have they done? They've got us through this season without clubs going bust, without too many footballers losing their jobs. And they've also got everybody, I think now, talking about cost control, wage restraint, even Gordon Taylor. Does that sound sensible? Well, I I don't altogether disagree with you. Everybody in football knows there needs to be financial controls. I, I think the problem with this salary cap was the way it was, they rushed it in, they didn't consult and it wasn't properly considered. The other problem with it, and this is a, a, a long-standing problem with the EFL. I don't blame the EFL for it. It's the basis of the organisation. Where you have clubs making their own rules, you have different vested interests. And so one of the real criticisms of this salary cap is it stopped clubs that could afford to pay players more from doing so. Um, so you're actually stopping investment. And the reason for that is the smaller clubs who can't afford to pay so much want to stop the bigger clubs competing with them. And so they set the the wage at the lowest, and that then has the, the, the negative effect on the players as well as the competition between the clubs. And by the way, it's something that doesn't sit easily with the pyramid structure of football. It's a point you make about the Premier League. If you start doing that, how does that affect the championship? How can you then have a salary cap? If you have a salary cap in the championship, you will have, as Bournemouth said the other day, the same three teams going up and down every year. The championship will end as a viable competition. It's not compatible with a a pyramid competitive system of football. So yes, you need salary control mechanisms, but they ought to have some rational relationship with a club's income and an investor's ability to invest in a club. And if you, you need some more time to think and work these things out, but you also need to deal with those vested interests, which will sometimes just vote for something to stop other clubs competing with them. And that is a, a problem the, the EFL often find themselves in the middle of, and one can feel sorry for them for that reason. A final one. You mentioned Andy Holt, and you know he's he's been critical of, of this decision, and we're going to talk to him in a minute on the pod. And critical of, of, as he says, you lot, <laughs> when he's referring to you, Nick, in response to, to your tweet. I want rules that would keep you lot a million miles away from our game. It's a toss-up for me who's worse for the game, <laughs> you lot or administrators. What's your response? Well, I, I respect his opinion. He's entitled to his opinion. I'm sure if he was on the other side of a, a EFL charge, he, he may well need a lawyer. Gone are the days when sport is no longer meant to apply the law and has to, you know, for the interest of everyone, club owners, clubs, players, it has to operate lawfully. And that inevitably means that sometimes uh, lawyers get involved. But, you know, the main thing I would say to people like Andy Holt is that I agree there needs to be sensible financial control mechanisms. I was involved in fighting for some of the Berry players who who lost their pay as a result of the football leagues on behalf of the PFA, as a result of the football league, not properly uh, having mechanisms for the control mechanisms in League One and League Two. I've read very carefully the independent investigation into Berry, the Berry Review, and some of the recommendations it made. And I think that what you know, the Football League ought to have given some more thought to those. I, I don't think it's wrong that in that club owners are allowed to invest in 
football if they can afford to. But what you do need to do is hold club owners to that investment. So you do need to make sure if they uh, raise the salaries to a certain level, that they can afford to keep putting that money in, whether that's by financial checks, whether it's by putting money in to deposit accounts or, or whatever. Those are the sort of things I think we need to look at so that we can both promote financial stability amongst the clubs um, with proper controls, but not at the expense of stopping investment. Because now, more than any time at all, we want to encourage investment in football, not discourage it. Nick, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate uh, you uh, you giving us the explanations this afternoon. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you, Nick. I know you're busy. Get back to it. Cheers, Cheers Nick. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Take Bye-bye. care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, as we've been saying, that's one point of view, and we're now going to get another from Andy Holt, who is the chairman of League One side Accrington Stanley. Andy, the last thing I did with Nick was put your tweet to him, and even in just reading that tweet, I think people listening will gather how you feel about this week's outcome. The way I feel is this. Owners are putting money into the game, and people like him and uh, the PFA are taking money out of the game. Uh, it's been wasted on legal fees, and they should have had their heads banged together and caught me a solution that uh, that resolved the issue. This salary cap, you know, it's 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 misnamed. There's a salary cap. There's always been a salary cap. Well, there was in my time, but it's been it's been going by a percentage or by some daft formula, or it's been a fixed number. But it's been a salary cap all the same. It's always been there. So so to to argue there shouldn't be a salary cap is wrong. The right thing to argue is how, how do we Make it get a salary cap going forward that works. Uh, watching EFL, we're doing the best, and, and EFL shouldn't be up against legal eagles like Demarco. You know, he, he gets on my nerves. He's making his reputation and his few bob out of beating EFL up, and they're not lawyers. You know, they're, they're trying to run a, a competition. They're trying to they're trying to do a job there, and, and I think you know him. him jumping up and down like a superhero that he's won a case against EFL. Look, really don't cut any eyes for me. And I think, you know, same with same with Gordon Taylor's comments. You know, I, the question is, what have you done for us in Corbyn, Gordon? That's my question. And the answer is, I don't see a lot. So so I, I kind of, well, for me, the last thing you should have done is end up in court. They should have sat down and said, right, how are we going to do this going forward? And, and there's a million options. There are, there are a million options that suit everybody. So, so it's not a difficult problem. Their argument, and as Nick has just been saying it to us, there is a, a what's something called the PFNCC, which is a, 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 mm. a collective bargaining agreement. And their argument was that the PFA weren't consulted by the EFL on this being implemented. I kind of, maybe I'm second guessing what you've said there, but you're kind of suggesting that at any time there have been consultations, the PFA haven't come to the table. That, that's the way I feel. I, I feel that uh, EFL are trying. We're in COVID times, and I think the PFA and Nick DeMarco, if they put the brains around resolving the real issues, which is how we get through COVID, and what, what system of managing salary levels going forward or salary expenditure going forward we're going to put in, that uh, would be better served. I'm putting money into football. Don't forget the money spent defending these cases you know, against, I don't know, QPR or Sheffield Wednesday and everything. It's part of my distribution. Nick DeMarco, unless he's done it for free, he's, he's spending my money. So at PFA and so at EFL. Andy, to be, to be fair, I'm pretty sure that Nick DeMarco was up against the QC working for the EFL. They would have got quite good external 
legal help. There was, whether you think it's great or not, there was this consultation mechanism that the EFL, I, I agree with you, for good reason, felt they had to move. They had to go quickly because of these strange times, you know, unprecedented times. Speaking to the PFA, I was asking those questions as well at the beginning of the season. You know, guys, are you going to move on cost control? Mm, well, we're going to have a little chat about it. Well, no, the clubs kind of need it now. So I, I, I see both sides. I understand your anger and I do get the fact that you feel it's wasted money. But then equally, just I think Nick did say something quite interesting. He said, gone are the days when football can act outside the law. And at least the law, if we kind of, you know, I, I certainly agree with this, is meant to be impartial. It's meant to be fair and objective. So you might need a Nick DeMarco one day. Is, is, that, is that not fair? I can assure you I've ex exhausted every opportunity to uh, resolve the issue without this. It's a carry-on. It's a fiasco. The UFL are not good at uh, running the non-competition stuff in football. And they're, they're easy to run rings around. They lose every case, uh, it seems. You know, people are... You know, we talk about SCMP, and which which effectively is the license to just spend and do exactly what you want. It might as well not even be there. Uh, and through this COVID crisis, I would left SCMP there. People like Gavin, Gavin Neville could have gone and spent ten million on his squad and taken advantage over clubs that don't have that uh, financial clout to go and do it and further enhance their uh, position. So, so the the football league needed to act and. Uh, and, and in, in fairness to it, it is, it is a lot better than when Sean Arbor were there. No matter what anybody says, it's getting better. It's still rubbish, but it's getting better. And, and they, are trying to, they are trying to do things that are, that are responsible. What, what matters here is not Nick and his, his bits of laws. What matters here is that we've got clubs left to apply law too. So, so PFA should be helping yeah. us, and, and so should Nick DeMarco find a system that, that, that can satisfy everybody's requirements. It's just wasting time and money going to court. No, you, you look at the... So, okay, so what's done is done, right? That money's spent, they've had the row, we are where we are. In fact, we're back where we were. Percentages of turnover, which let's just, be, let's just put it into context. In your league, League One in particular, is massive, huge disparity. You've got Sunderland, you've got Portsmouth, you've got, you've got Peterborough, Ipswich in there, and you've got yourselves. Massive difference in turnover, and therefore, by that mechanism, big disparity in wage bill. I wonder if... Let's just say the EFL had applied SCMP this year. What would the difference have been? There is no, there is no revenue. When the tag is out, you see everybody's ass, and, you, and you're seeing it now. You know, we're all, we're all exposed for what we are. We're clubs heavily reliant on, on, on what crowds we get. In the main, well, in the vast majority of clubs are overspending because the prize mechanism in football is designed to, to, to encourage you to overspend, you benefit from overspending potentially. Some don't, you know, and some of them clubs in our league haven't benefited no matter how much you spend. The, the tide went out and we, we had to put some we had to put some limits on it. Otherwise unscrupulous owners could have took advantage and just bought up all the talent when everybody else is struggling to stay alive. And, and you can't have that. This SCMP never worked. It were a joke because there were a tick box on bottom where you could just say, well, I agree to this until I don't. And I'll put money in and do what I want. You know, so, so it really it really didn't matter. Uh, and, and, you know, with financial fair play, 11 clubs to lose 13 million a year, up to 39 million or whatever it is over three years. How are you going to measure that this year? The losses are going to be higher. You can't, you, you've got players contract for three years. You don't have an easy 
uh, an easy escape route from these player contracts, thanks to Gordon and his merry men. You can't you can't work your way through that when when they should have been working with us. You know, so, so the the financial fair play can't be uh, used this year. And now look at SCMP. What well, we're back with SCMP now because of this ruling. Now I accept the matter of the law. You know, I fully accept that. But but what matters is community football. What matters is that we get through this. You know, and I, and I object to them to, if they did it for for free. You know, Gordon went on his two million salary or whatever he's on, and to the guy took whatever. You know, I can understand they're not they're doing what agents are doing. They're doing what everybody else is doing. They're taking money out of game, and I, I just don't I don't I don't get that. And jump up and down on Twitter saying how wonderful his chambers are. It just doesn't doesn't cut any eyes with me. Do you know, Andy? Do you know whether at the start of all of this, when this was being proposed, whether anybody from the EFL phoned Gordon Taylor and the PFA up and went. What should we do with about this? Do you? I mean, do you know? Because because the bigger picture here is how the EFL are running the seventy two clubs, isn't it? Listen, I don't know that they did. Uh, I would I would imagine they did because you know they tend to. It's like going through mud with getting any changes with EFL and the, the sort of conversation we're having now. You can't have, you know, because you get two seconds to talk and then somebody else buzzes in and says we're a big club so we want to spend what we want. You can't you can't have a common sense debate at EFL level. You're having a vote. You go and you have your vote, then you have a chat afterwards. Behind what they're trying to do now, there's there's better motives from EFL. There's no doubt about it. That there's better motives, uh, and and uh, we've got to get through now. Going forward, with salary control, it doesn't need to be salary cap. What the problem with financial fair play and SCMP is they work retrospectively. So so you're calculating them after the event. You're finding QPR years after the problem. Bournemouth have been up and down to Premier League and, and then you find him. And, and it's wrong. If you have a salary cap, you know, we'll come to how you work out calorie, salary cap, but if you have a salary cap in first place, each month you put in exactly the same figures we put into uh, into revenue to declare as tax and all the rest of it. And EFL, and along on a month-by-month basis, can see that you're you in your cap. If you step outside that cap, then they can, at the time that you do it, they can deduct points. They can say, we're, we're, we're punishing you now. Not when there's a new owner coming. Not, not, not when somebody else comes and says, well, hang on a minute. I didn't own it when this problem happened. And, and then the punishment for them breaches can be automatic. Not something that Nick has to get involved in. You know, if, you, if you're doing drive, you're getting banned. So, so you know if you break breach salary cap. But EFL have, the, have all the information in front of them. What they don't have is what the cap is. So, so because their cap is based on a future projected turnover and with best willing world in football, you've no idea what it's going to be. So, so EFL could go back and say, right, your average of your last three years turnover was this and, and or whatever formula they want to use. This is your cap. Next year, we'll give you average at last three years and, and that's your cap and we're going to measure it each month. They could say there's three different caps in each league. Band A, Band B, Band C. You're a Band C hacky because you're a little club. Portsmouth, you're a big club. There's, there's a lot of ways of managing it, but you've got to do it. You've got to, you've got to do it contemporaneously. You've got to punish at the time. Andy, I think that's that's really interesting, that, that last point you're making there. Do you, are you aware of what La Liga does in Spain? No. La Liga gives bespoke salary caps to each club. They brought it in a few years ago. It was one of Javier Tebas's big reforms. First one was 
a fairer distribution of the TV money. So once upon a time, Real and Barca used to just take the lot. So they take a big chunk now, but it's it's fairer. It's closer to sort of the Premier League idea now. And the second one is you as a club go to La Liga's financial department and say, here are our projections for the year. Here's what we earned last year. Here's what we think we're going to earn this year. And they are given a salary cap. And as you say, the minute you go out of it, boom, window coming up. Yeah, I think you, I think that's what you do. I think they do it just before the summer window. And then there's a sort of update coming into the January window. And you know, you'll be told, no, you can spend, no, you can't spend, you can, you've got to sell someone. And it's very, very club specific. I mean, could that work here? It's a control and the, the punishment and the, the management of it happens at the time it happens. I mean, I come up from a different point of view. I'm not a football man. I, I got into football to keep uh, Accrington going. It was, it was, uh, it, it was doomed. And, and when you get involved, it's obvious to a man on a galloping horse what's wrong. You know, if you wouldn't, you get more money and it, and it encourages people to gamble. So you've got to have some limit. But the, the other point here that, that drives me mad we voted on this in League One and League Two. We voted, and the vote were in favour of a salary cap. And what what Nick DeMarco and uh, Gordon and his merry men have, have done? They, they've effectively said our our vote's null and void. You know, as a, as a, as owners, the people that are actually putting the money in and keeping the game going. Don't forget, there's no EFL without owners. Trust me, they're giving us a bit of money, but it's not anywhere close to enough. This club's on the edge now. Effectively, what we're saying is we, we can't we can't vote and change it without getting everybody else's approval, you know. And I, and I think it's EFL's competition. We should be able to set the rules, just like Formula One does with its competition, just like they're doing every, you know, whether it be horse racing or cycling or whatever. We should be able to set rules to keep it stable and keep competition reasonably fair. If we can get out of this, you know. We'll send it to a dis- disciplinary panel where nobody knows what's going to happen with the panels. Usually, EFL loses because they've got an L on the back. Uh, but, but they usually lose on everything they do. And, and they're likely to because they're not barristers. They need to be focusing on doing jobs. So, if punishment's fixed, and, and it's, you know, if you want to be in competition, you do this, you get that. Well, take your club and go and play La Liga. You know, don't don't. We're not we're not listening to anything else, and then it cuts a lot at work and allows EFL to focus on a lot of bigger issues like growing revenue, like uh, improving what is greatest set of leagues in the world. What happens from here now, Andy? Look, I'd, I'd be sitting down with Gordon and, and uh, to the chap and, and saying, look, where do we go from here? Because we can't have an open-ended spend what you want football league when when clubs are going bust. You know you. These clubs that are claiming biggest lump of uh, the Premier League bailout are the ones now wanting to spend more than everybody else, and they've no income. You know, how, how, can, how does that make sense? You know, you've got, you've got, you saw some of them buy World Greek on Netflix. Everybody saw it. So they buy World, World Greek for millions, whatever the figure is. They've no money. That goes to Wigan, and they're the bust. Where, where is the common sense in that? You know, how can that be right? And, and you know, EFL, because of all the criticism they continually get, and I try not to be crit- critical, I want them to go forward, you know, but I want them to go forward sustainably. Uh, because they keep getting criticism, they're bringing more and more independent bodies in, and so, so it ends up being legal disputes and all the rest of it. And they don't deserve it because they are decent people. And, you know, majority of owners are decent. 
But we're in a situation where clubs are suing each other. Football's run, big clubs call all the shots. And it's a problem because it's not the majority. And you, you, you know, you look at what's happening in, in the Premier League now, they're, they're working on a new stability deal that should come out in March. And, and effectively, a few clubs are controlling destiny of everybody. You know, it's not some independent body. It's it's a few clubs, a few rich clubs that are, you know, and, and the same clubs are wanting on the big picture to take a bigger, uh, more powerful role in, in football. Do you believe that you and others with your mindset who are like you can eventually change the way the the English game is run? Or do you do you, or do you think you and others like you with the responsible mindset that you have will eventually go sod this, we're exhausted, we're getting nowhere, we're walking away. And I'm not trying to be sensational. I'm not trying to be sensationalist, Andy. But so, so you know, and, and uh, I'm up half at night thinking about uh, DeMarco's tweet com- congratulating himself for beating EFL. You know, it's like me con- congratulating myself for standing on a worm. You know what I mean? It's, he's, he's big chambers. It's a professional at it. You know, it's, EFL shouldn't be good at that. They should be good at running a competition and they should be supported by clubs because at the end of the day, EFL is clubs. But uh, in answer to your question, I don't, you know, you, you see what Simon's doing at uh, Plymouth. I'll speak to him. You see what Carol's doing at Port Vale. It, there's, a, there's a swell here of, of clubs that are deciding enough is enough and they're running things better. Now, if you get a majority of people wanting to uh, vote in more sustainable rules, not to protect, I don't care what Portsmouth's budget does, you know, don't worry me, everybody thinks I'm trying to compete. Our budget cap is 2.5 million. We're up to 1.3. We spent 1.3 million on his budget and we're losing money at that. I think there's a groundswell. I think there's, I think there's a feeling in the EFL that things have to change. And, and, you know, there needs to be a feeling in all football that uh, it needs to be sustainable. And running to long, running to long period, you know, it needs to be going in 50 years, we should be thinking, not not having clubs on the knees. Andy, just to, just to cheer you up a little bit, you know, you make a really interesting point there about being below the cap, right? You're spending below the cap, considerably below the cap. You're eighth in the table. You're one place behind Sunderland. You know, you're, you're four places behind Portsmouth. You're having a great year. So it can be done, right? You can compete on a budget. It's a state of mind. Well, if everybody pays, we have reasoned. If players can't go and get it somewhere else, a lot more, three and four times salary, then then they'll go where you know if they don't get two times as much, they're still doing well. So so it, it is a state of mind. You don't have to get rich your club every time to to uh, uh, to go forward. I mean, I mean, I'm philosophical because at Accrington over the next 50 years, it's going to get promotions, relegations. I hope a promotion this year, by the way. Uh, but you're going to get promotions, relegations, and everything at club and football league needs to be such that clubs can go up and down without going bust. That they can run without being, I mean, the very existence threatened by a crazy system. You know, and I'm not having a go at EFL. I just think they've, they've wandered into a position now over years. You know, SCMP, we do a lot of work for the nutting. We haven't had to do it this year. It takes our accountants ages filling that in for, for EFL. There's a tick box at the bottom that just says, ignore this and spend what you want. You know, you, as long as you're putting it in, you can spend what you want. And then you wonder why you've got League, league One and Two clubs with mountains of debt. But there's got to be some control. You know, and I, 
I'm a little bit flippant with you, Marco. I'm not that he's a great lawyer. He's a very good lawyer. Do the EFL need to employ more people with financial expertise within their governance team so that they can get to the bottom of what is wrong at some clubs? Because you said it's like stepping on a worm, Nick DeMarco winning. So therefore, does the EFL need greater financial and legal expertise within its corridors of power? Not necessarily. I think it needs them short term to put in the right systems and put the right controls in. But I think I think disciplinary should be automatic. I don't think there should be rights to it. You, know, you get clubs saying, I'm going to do what I want, and uh, I'll put them in court for 10 years at EFL. Clubs have said it to me. You know, we'll, we'll just let it, you know... And if, if it's automatic and, and it's the, the punishment's not retrospective, it's as you do it, you know, EFL could have a traffic light system where you've got, you know, green, amber, red. You, you get away with the first one, second one, you get in fine, third one, you're losing points. And, and there's, a, there's a million and one ways that can happen. It all comes with me correct the same. I don't want to hold Portsmouth up. I don't want to hold Sunderland up. They're great clubs. You know, it's not my fault they're playing Accrington on a wet Tuesday night. You know, I haven't put them in that position. They've done it themselves without any cap. You know, they've gone and lost hundreds of millions uh, over the years and put themselves in that position. So, so wanting no controls and being able to do what you want, it, it, for me, we've had that. We've done that. We've bought the T-shirt. Half at clubs are on their ass. Half at clubs have gone bust or, or been into administration and out. And we, we, we don't want that in future. I'm saying this, I might not even be lucky in future. But I like to think that once I walk away from Hackington, it'll be straight. And uh, the, the governance of the game, will give it a chance of surviving. So, uh, there's a better time ahead. And I think we all need to work to that better time. I wish you well. Thank you very much for joining myself and Matt this afternoon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Andy. Cheers, guys. Take it easy. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, let's move away from the salary cap now. We're going to talk uh, test cricket returning to terrestrial television this week in the UK for the first time since the 2005 Ashes. Channel 4 won the rights to show England series uh, away in India to look at the deal and what it means in terms of bringing the game uh, to a wider audience. We're joined by uh, Julian Aquilina, senior TV analyst at uh, Ender's Analysis. Um, this is great for the audience is this a great deal all round? What are your thoughts on the deal? 
um, absolutely great for the fans. Uh, everyone's been very excited to have um, more cricket. A lot of people will be asking questions about what this means for the future of cricket rights on Sky and whether free-to-air broadcasters are going to get into the game a little bit more. This was more of an opportunistic time for Channel 4 to step in and, and, and take up some rights, which probably Sky and BT didn't really see carry too much value for their own offerings at this stage. Is a lot of this to do with, obviously, the pandemic and, and travel not being uh, encouraged, obviously, at the moment? So with quite a lot of the away series, uh, and we've seen it when England have gone to other places, and you can also see it when South Africa are playing Pakistan at the moment, they they have what they call, don't they, a, a host broadcast feed or a world broadcast feed, which is... Uh, provided by the host country, and then people buy that feed in. And that that is what Channel 4 have done. And therefore, Sky couldn't do all their usual whiz-bang expertise that they would normally put around a test series. So so is it the pandemic that has caused this deal? I don't think it's caused this deal necessarily. I think think you're absolutely right, Mark, that it's had an effect. Um, You know, Sky might be more reluctant if they can't put their own sort of production shine on things. And and as you say, um, they are of the highest quality in that department and have been for years. What it comes down to is just what makes commercial sense for each company. Um, Now, we don't know whether Sky or BT bid more than Channel 4 did. And it's not always as simple as the highest bid wins because you've got other dynamics at play. Um, And the main one is obviously broadcasters reach the question of whether that sporting body is willing to forgo, you know, short-term pay TV revenues and the higher sums that it's going to get there uh, versus the the sort of long-term health or interest in in, in their sport or competition. And that's more easily achieved if if you're going to go with a free-to-air broadcaster like Channel 4 um, because it doesn't shut out, you know, this large portion of potentially very interested audience. Julian, just just on that, I think that's a really interesting point because, because it's something that we've been talking about you know, for 20 odd years when, when people started to move behind paywalls and of course the athletic is behind a paywall, but look, we don't do TV, right? So I, you know, I understand that kind of that move behind a paywall. You, you lose people when you go behind a paywall. Uh, the now, podcast, the podcast, <laughs> podcasts aren't behind a paywall. The podcasts are, very, are, are free. So point. I just thought I'd uh, put that out there. With this particular series though, I get it if it was the ECB series to sell, because then you would be able to have this wonderful debate about, well, look, going behind a paywall brought us lots more money, which we poured into All-Stars cricket, and we've been tightening up uh, clubhouses around the country, and we've been able to spend money on subsidising coaching and all that sort of stuff, but we've lost some eyeballs. But now it's time maybe to get the eyeballs back because we're worried about kind of, you know, the, the pipeline of youngsters not seeing cricket. But this was not theirs to sell, right? This was, you mentioned Star, right? So did did the Indian Cricket Authority sell it to a agency, presumably, and they've sold it to Channel Four. So what? How did this happen? How did Channel Four end up with this this gift? I mean, for this particular case, the most likely scenario is that Sky and BT and whoever else they just didn't see that um, these particular sets of rights would add enough value to their content offerings. Because, um, as you know, Sky is um, as a as you've just said, Sky is the major holder of cricket rights uh, in the UK with both the ECB and the ICC deals. And with the ECB rights alone um, for England's you know, home international and first class matches, uh, that makes Sky the obvious broadcaster of choice for cricket fans. So no cricket fan is going to cancel their subscription to Sky purely based on it not showing this overseas tour. 
So I think when Sky is considering whether to bid or how much to bid, um, the question it's asking itself is, how many people are going to sign up for a subscription based on this series being included in my portfolio? And how many existing subscribers does this portfolio sort of retain and, and prevent me from losing them? Now, frankly, that number has to be tiny because all cricket fans who want any sort of meaningful amount of cricket already on their TV, they're going to be Sky subscribers. And I don't think that this one tour is enough to sway them at the fringes. So really, it comes down to the fact that for Sky to pay a little bit more for more content to add to its cricket portfolio, well, it probably just wouldn't generate enough revenue, possibly wasn't going to be worthwhile if it was even going to be profitable at all. Now, the reason why Channel 4 is obviously now the rights holder is because, because of this dynamic whereby Sky doesn't need the rights. And you know, BT might argue the same for, for slightly different reasons. Um, it does pave the way for, you know, for new entrants um, who can generate more revenue than, than the incumbents. It's probably also worth mentioning that this is, this is actually completely within Sky's overarching strategy. And it's been talking about this for a number of years now that it's repeatedly stated it's going to be cutting back on spending on sports rights in general uh, because it wants to redeploy um, its efforts and its content spend into particularly original programming where it needs to compete with you know, the ever-growing global giants like Netflix and, and Disney. And we've seen Sky take this approach in other European markets already. So most recently, probably with the Champions League in Italy. But that's quite interesting going forward, isn't it, Julian, actually? Because yeah, as, I, as I'm led to believe, the last time the Champions League came up for, for, for renewal, Sky, as I understand, nobody from Sky directly has told me this, but as I understand, Sky kind of tried to work out whether it would bring them a whole load of new subscribers if they got the Champions League back. And I think they worked it out and they probably thought it wouldn't for the £1 billion outlay or whatever was required for the Champions League. And for for sports that aren't football, this will be very interesting going forward. You know, Sky, if they look at their rugby league coverage, will they lose a lot of subscribers if they ditch their coverage of Super League? I have no idea. What about the Six Nations, which is up for grabs, you know, reportedly up for grabs. If if that goes to Sky, does Sky increase their number of subscribers? Or have they hit the limit for sport uh, unless, and, and if they lost the Premier League, then they might lose a lot. Maybe that's what it boils down to. It definitely comes back to that. I mean, you know, the fact of the matter is football is by far and away the largest and most important sport for the UK consumer, for UK fans. And I mean, I mean, we recently did a piece of research um, where we looked at the value of rights and the fact that that's based on the ability to bring in unique viewers to a subscription platform. So, you know, people who aren't interested in the primary rights like a, like a Premier League or Champions League. And actually, we found that, for example, the ECB cricket packages, there are 220,000 um, Sky households who watched that cricket, but they don't watch any Premier League at all. You know, that's that's a significant chunk of people, which is, is clearly adding value to Sky's overall portfolio. I think when we're talking about these other, other sets of rights, um, it's just that, you know, those numbers are negligible in comparison. Sky has, you know, stated some pretty strong ambitions there and um, being the dominant player, not just in the UK sports market, but 
you know, in, in other markets in Europe, like Germany and Italy, um, it's going to have serious implications and repercussions on, on sports outside of football. Just bringing it back to Channel 4 and, and the cricket, which, which has really felt like the kind of feel-good sports hit for me of, 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 the, of the winter. I mean, I watch a lot of football, but, you know, everyone watches a lot of football. We're all watching a lot of football. But people have been talking about the cricket. It's on at a funny time. We're playing well. It looks nice. It's sunny. Have you measured? How, how's it doing? Do you know how it's doing? Is it, it? I like it, but am I weird? I mean, is it doing well? Well, they're two separate questions. <laughs> yeah, they are. Am I weird? And is it doing well? I'll try to hold off answering one of those questions. I'll, I'll address the other one. No, not at all, Matt. You're not weird. I mean, on, on, on Channel 4, they've had 3.6 million people tune in um, on Sunday alone. Um, that was day three of the test. Wow. Um, and they averaged, you know, nearly 900,000 TV viewers across across five and a half hours of broadcast coverage, starting at six in the morning, as you say. I mean, it's not it's not exactly favourable. What would they be doing normally? Because, I mean, daytime's quite good. Yeah, yeah. Four, um, I mean, you know, normally uh, it's... I mean, I mean, these these numbers are far above. They're, they're more than five times above what Channel 4 usually gets for that time slot on those days. And, I mean, for comparison directly to cricket... You know, it's about three times the average audience that Sky was getting for the recent Sri Lanka test. So, you know, that goes back to the whole trade-off between free-to-air and pay-TV broadcasters and their reach. It's a performance which is not to be sniffed at by any means. And I think, I think Channel 4 should be very pleased with, with how it's done so far. Are they getting out on, other, on their other platforms as well as just terrestrial TV or... Is it just on terrestrial? And I wonder how that will sit with a younger audience. The content's being put out there, but the question, we've got very limited visibility as to what actually gets watched on other platforms. And the fact of the matter is that, uh, yeah, as you say, young audiences, they've been increasingly moving away from uh, live TV for a number of years now. Um, in fact, it's not just the youngest audiences anymore. It's We're certainly starting to see it amongst, you know, the, 30s, 40s, and 50s. And, you know, it, it's just going to be increasingly difficult for traditional broadcasters to reach those audiences via traditional methods. We put together our own figures because, as I said, there isn't, you know, proper audited measurement of video across all video platforms. Our current view is that broadcasters now account for less than half of all the video time for kids and for 16 to 34 year olds. You know, so when you're in that much competition with, for people's attention, then, then it does become very, very tricky to reach them. Great to have you on, Julian. Thank you very much for, for your insight. Really appreciate it. Great to see you both. Thank you, Julian. Well played. That's it. Thanks to all our guests. Thanks to Matt. And I'm back on Tuesday with David Ornstein. Bye for now. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.